Good morning, and welcome, and thank you as always for the warm welcome I receive when we come. It's always good to remember on days such as today, when there are people missing, um, such as Katrina, but many others because of the weather and for other reasons, that we are a body, whether physically present or not, and that we are in the presence of God, united, whether physically together or not. And to know that as we gather here in the presence of the Lord, that Katrina is also in the presence of the Lord, and many others I'm sure that you have come to your mind. Let us begin with a word from Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I behold, uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out. Or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. Till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is not the first time I've used this verse as a call to worship. But given today's text, which will make more sense later, it was a verse that kept coming to mind. And in the world that we live in, I think it's one that we can often bring to mind. In a world where people are brushed aside, where hope is often crushed, and people's lack of faith seems to compound the guilt and such like that they feel. Here, in the heart of the Old Testament, in the heart of the prophets we are reminded that we gather to worship one who nurtures those who are weak, who values those who are pushed aside and damaged, and does not seek to punish people for their weak faith, but instead to care for them and strengthen them. He does not bring justice by force, but in gentleness and in peace. So let's be encouraged as we gather to worship that the Lord desires you to be here, to be in his presence, to heal and to strengthen you, to do so with sensitivity and care. Yes, when we are weak, he is strong, but he is also gentle. So let us gather to worship the chosen one who brings the hope to the world near and far. We will sing hymn number 108, Sing of the Lord's Goodness.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, gentle and powerful, loving and Lord, unite us by your Spirit. Work in us and through us that we may glorify your Son by whose name we are known. Comfort us and heal us. Strengthen and renew us that our lives, our speech, our very being would be a witness to you. We know, Lord, that we have failed you in thought and sometimes in deed. Not only in what we have done, but also in what we have failed to do. Yet, Lord, it is with your encouragement that we are able to still come to you, knowing your desire to forgive us and restore us. Help us, Lord, to receive your forgiveness, your blessing, and to be able to rest. May we know your peace in our hearts and mind. Free us from the unnecessary burdens that we carry. And may our time in your presence this morning be blessed and refreshing. And may we, your children, give you a reason to delight over us. It is as our Heavenly Father that we now pray together to you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from war. Time is the kingdom, the power of the world, forever and forever. Amen. <coughs> doesn't know that I'm going to pick on her this morning. But I'm quite pleased that she came out as soon as I asked her to. No. Can you come out the front? Okay. Now, I'm sure you're all used to the idea. Do you want to face the door? Or face over here? You're all used to this idea, and I'm sure you've seen the trust exercise, where you face the other way, and then in your own time you just fall back against me. And no hesitation at all. Nice and simple. 
Yeah, good. We're going to have a wee twist on that. Okay. Of course, you're really meant to be blindfolded. So, if you want to turn around. Thank you. Oh. And uh, we'll make sure <laughs> that you can't see anything. Okay. Now, of course, Beth quite happily fell back into my arms because she trusted me. Um, now, I know I'm coming through the microphone, Beth, but can you hear where I am? I'm over here somewhere. Okay, now, I'm going to give Beth the same instruction, but just when she's ready, if she just wants to fall back in her own time. <laughs> I'm quite happy to stay over here. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm still over here. I'm still over by the door. If I stay still, would that help? No, no. But would you trust me if I said that uh, you'll still get caught? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you could ask the obvious question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you'll feel to fall back. And it's apparently one of the strongest members of the congregation from what I've been told. <laughs> When you're ready. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> there you are. Great. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, it's a fun exercise to do. And uh, there was a reason I chose Beth, which will become clear in a minute. Um, and I have seen, that was my idea. I've seen someone else do it before. And they've often said, this is what it means to have faith in God. That if God tells you to do something, you just have to trust him and do it. And on one sense, that's kind of true. But there's a little bit of me that thinks, bunkum, not quite true. How do you think Beth would have felt? I mean, you saw how much she struggled when I was stood by the How do you think Beth would have felt if a complete stranger had walked in two minutes before that act and just literally come up to the front of the church and told Beth to come out here? Would you have come? If it was a complete stranger? <laughs> no one's so funny, but if a complete stranger in here, what would the rest of you have done if a complete stranger had walked up to the front of the church and just told Beth to come out? I kind of like to think at least one person would have jumped up to try and stop them. <laughs> you know, hopefully, you'd all be starting to worry a little bit for Beth and want to protect her because you don't know the stranger at all. See, sometimes when we talk... Now, of course, the reason I chose Beth is because of everyone in the congregation, I've known Beth the longest. Um, myself and Beth met through mutual friends. I worked out nearly ten years ago. About eight or nine years ago. Yeah. Okay, just when you came back to the and then different things. So we've known each other for a while through one thing or another. So when people talk about having trust in God and having faith in God, it isn't just doing what God says. There's a beginning point. And if we can learn this as children, and if we can remember this as adults, it begins by getting to know God. And how do you get to know someone? Good. You introduce yourself. You could do that. You could say, hi, God, it's me. Um, what other things do you do to get to know people? You spend time with them. 
You ask them questions. And sometimes when they say things that you think are nonsense, do you just accept it? No, you challenge them. And later on today, the grown-ups, we're going to look at a text where actually Abraham does just that. God tells Abraham what he's going to do. And Abraham basically turns and said, I beg your pardon, I don't think so. And there are numerous places. So I'd encourage you, ask questions, get to know God by spending time with him, reading your Bibles, praying, asking other Christians and so on. It's how we all grow. And it's how it becomes when it comes to situations when we are asked to do something that requires a little bit of trust that it's going to be okay. If we're honest, we learn that because we've got to know God first. Very few people are able to take big leaps of faith from nothing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are not a God who remains silent. You are not a God who stands back and just watches. We pray, Lord, for the children here and also for ourselves, that as we consider your word, that we would ask questions that we would be confident enough to challenge you, Lord, knowing that you would answer us, that you would show us, whether it's through your Bible, whether it's through other people and what they say, or whether it's through things we see. Encourage us, Lord, to get to know you better. Amen. Let us now sing hymn 565, There Are Hundreds of Sparrows. first reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 18. Then the men left and went to a place where they could look down at Sodom, and Abram went with them and to send them on their way. 
And the Lord said to himself, I will not hide from Abram what I am going to do. His descendants will become a great and mighty nation, and through him I will bless all the nations. I have chosen him in order that he may command his sons and his descendants to obey me and to do what is right and just. If they do, I will do everything for him that I have promised. Then the Lord said to Abraham, There are terrible accusations against Sodom and Gomorrah, and their sin is very great. I must go down and find out whether or not the accusations which I have heard are true. Then the two men left and went on towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached the Lord and asked, Are you really going to destroy the innocent with the guilty? If there are 50 people, innocent people in the city, will you destroy the whole city? Won't you spare them in order to save the 50? Surely you won't kill the innocent with the guilty. That's impossible. You can't do that. If you did, the innocent, innocent would be punished along with the guilty. That is impossible. The judge of all the earth has to act justly. The Lord answered, If I find fifty innocent people in Sodom, I will spare the whole city for their sake. Abram spoke again. Please forgive my boldness in continuing to speak to you, Lord. I'm only a man and have no right to say anything. But perhaps there will be only forty-five innocent people instead of fifty. Will you destroy the whole city because there are five too few? The Lord answered, I will not destroy the city if I find 45 innocent people. Abram spoke again. Perhaps there will be only 40. He replied, I will not destroy it if there are 40. Abram said, Please don't be angry, Lord, but I must speak again. What if there are only 30? He said, I will not do it if I find 30. Abram said, Please forgive my boldness in continuing to speak to you, Lord. Suppose that only twenty are found. He said, I will not destroy the city if I find twenty. Abram said, Please don't be angry, Lord, and I will speak only once more. What if only ten are found? He said, I will not destroy it if there are ten. After he finished speaking with Abraham, the Lord went away, and Abraham returned home. Second reading from Luke 9. As the time drew near when Jesus would be taken up to heaven, he made up his mind and set out on his way to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went into a village in Samaria to get everything ready for him. But the people there would not receive him because it was clear that he was on his way to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire down from heaven to destroy them? Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then Jesus and his disciples went on to another village. Amen.
This morning's texts, when placed in opposition together, create a bit of a conundrum. Quite often in my daily reading, well, quite often when I was at college, I was always encouraged to listen to opposing voices at the same time. But sometimes that almost happens by mistake, that in what you happen to be reading in one book whilst reading through the Bible and the others, you find seem to be saying opposite things. And it can leave you feeling uncomfortable. And I must admit, as I prepared this morning's sermon, I was counting on the fact that you know me to an extent that you will permit me to make you feel a little uncomfortable this morning too. So shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for the luxury of being able to study them and meditate on them. But ultimately, Lord, it is your voice that we desire to hear. Give us wisdom and insight. Help us to understand and to see what it is you, yourself, would say to us here this morning. That we may leave here being fed, encouraged, strengthened, and maybe even corrected. Amen. As Christians we get asked difficult questions. And we all have our preferred responses. Being a teacher who works in schools, the pupils, is when they find out you're a Christian, don't hold back. They will ask you anything. Also, when I go into the jails, which I do with prison fellowship, sometimes you come across a prisoner who's there and he's come solely for that reason to ridicule you, to point out why what you believe is an absolute load of nonsense and rubbish. There are some questions you get used to being asked and you answer them in similar manner. But occasionally, you get given a scenario and someone says, well, what do you think the right answer is? And you're either not sure or would rather they hadn't asked the question because you think you know what the answer is, but it's not going to be what they would like to hear. When we look at the two texts this morning, I could quite happily stand up here and give a whole sermon about Luke chapter 9. Here we have Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. We know he's going to make himself a sacrifice for our own salvation. The people of Samaria don't accept him. In many ways, they have rejected Jesus. And James and John want to call down fire from heaven and destroy them. And Jesus says no. He says, you do not know what spirit you're of. In some translations, he goes on to say, I've come to bring life, not death. 
It's great, it's fantastic, because here we have Jesus saying, no, it's wrong to condemn these people simply for rejecting me. It's wrong to desire the destruction of others. Isn't this the message that we want to give? But James and John, again in some translations, appealed to the Old Testament. Jesus may say, you do not know what spirit you are of. But have they just not known, read their scriptures? I mean, for example, if we were reading the King James, James and John say, just like Elijah did. And they're not referring to when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. No. It's a much pettier situation in some ways. King, sorry, Ahaziah, I had to remember which king for a moment, had sinned. He'd also fallen ill. And Elijah had let him know that he would die from his injuries. Ahaziah sent a captain with 50 soldiers to go and get Elijah. And so the captain turns up and says, Elijah, come, we must go and see the king. Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you, which it does. So Ahaziah, having learnt or not, sends another captain with another 50 men who go to Elijah and say, Elijah, come quickly. Elijah again calls down fire from heaven and can destroy them. This is the great prophet. This is the one who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, killing off people simply for not showing him enough respect. Eventually, the next 50 turn up, and the captain is a bit wiser. He basically grovels and goes on his hands and knees and says, please, please, just, and he begs for patience, he begs for mercy, and so Elijah goes with him. I think, but, but that's one of the Old Testament texts that we kind of don't really want to have to deal with. But is it really an Old Testament versus New Testament argument in that sense? Is it one of those cases where we like, to, we like to read the Sermon on the Mount, but we don't particularly want to read Deuteronomy or any of the laws, because then it gets a bit more judgmental? Except Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew, not because he was scared of the people in Nineveh and what they might do to him. Jonah says he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that if they repented, God would forgive them. All the way through the Old Testament, alongside this calling down fire from heaven is the knowledge of the people of Israel that their God is gracious and merciful. Where does that come from? This confusion that somehow Jesus in the New Testament is different to the God of the Old Testament is confused further if we accept the speculation that as this was the Lord appearing to Abraham in human form, was this what we call a theophany? Was this Jesus himself? In which case, the picture is even more confusing. Jesus stood in front of the mass crowd and defended a woman caught in adultery so that she wouldn't be stoned and gave a newness of life. But when we read the Old Testament record, it's Abraham that stood in front of the adulterer Sodom, defending them from Jesus who's coming to destroy them. Or oh, that's the picture that some would have us believe. That's what we're kind of led down that path. That somehow we are just sinners in the hands of an angry God. But thankfully because of Jesus standing up and saying, no, not these, because these are mine, these will not be destroyed. 
that somehow we're saved. We might think this is ridiculous, but this is the God that many in the world think we worship. This is the understanding that many have of the faith that we claim to hold so dearly. In fact, when you look at many of the sacrificial systems throughout history, they have all been based on the idea that God is angry and powerful and just, and if you don't do what's right, he's going to destroy you, or you can get away with it if you make a reasonable sacrifice. He's quite happy to turn a blind eye if you give him three doves and a pigeon. It seems bizarre. It's no wonder when people's view of God is of this almighty, powerful, judgmental God that some societies resorted to sacrificing other humans. They were so scared they would do anything to get pardoned. They would risk sack anyone else's life to try and save their own. In some ways, it's, it's good that we have the passage in Luke because... We are able to say Jesus did not come to destroy life but to save it. And there is that open rebuke of James and John for wanting to destroy those who had refused hospitality to Jesus. But I believe there's more to this text in Genesis than simply Abraham trying to stop God from destroying the city of Sodom. There's more in this text than this angry God being told no by Abraham. I mean, imagine this. Here we have the Lord, and it's Abraham who turns back and says to God, no, how dare you? You can't do this. That wouldn't be the right thing to do. Abraham has no qualms about challenging God directly about his actions. The whole passage in Genesis is one that many of us would quite happily avoid, if we're honest in polite company. Abraham, the hero of this story, once tried to marry off his wife to save his own life because he was worried that if Pharaoh had seen how nice his wife was, he'd have her killed. So his wife, who also happened to be his half-sister, he said to Pharaoh, you go and marry him and that way I can live. The same man who then had children with his servants, but when they upset his wife, sent him and and the child Ishmael off into the desert. It's not exactly like he's led a perfect life himself. The one person from Sodom who's going to be saved, which is Lot, lived there for many years with his young children, despite all the evil and such like that was going around about them, but years later was so scared that something might happen to his own daughters, lived in a cave with them, and we are led to believe, got so drunk, managed to father his own children, his own grandchildren. You're thinking, if this is the example of what's righteous and godly, I hate to think what the people of Sodom were up to that meant they had to be destroyed. Now, don't misunderstand me. The actions of Abraham and the actions of Lot in these instances were, I want to say evil, but I'm always very careful of using such terms, but they were horrendous. It isn't helped when we look at this text that Peter in his letter towards the end of the New Testament, writes and holds Sodom and Gomorrah up as an example of what will happen to the unrighteous when the Lord returns. Which is why I think it's even all the more important that we understand this passage. Now you might be sat there thinking, I hope this isn't one of those there's good news and bad news, but the bad news is there's no good news kind of sermons. There is some good news. 
but sometimes the good news isn't appreciated till we fully understand the picture. So forgive me for painting quite a dark picture. See, the question would be is, is Abraham changing God's mind? Is Abraham attempting to stop God from what he's going to do? Or is he giving God a chance to expose what he's going to do? Think for a minute if you've ever seen Prime Minister's Question Time and at the moment a member of the Conservative Party stands up and asks some what seems like a nonsensical question. But the purpose of the question is so that David Cameron can stand there and expound quite happily some wonderful thing that he believes he's achieved. There was no purpose to the question, but it helps David Cameron expose to talk good about himself. Although Abraham wasn't aware of it, I believe very much that that's what's happening here. By Abraham's questioning, it reveals God's nature. It reveals something about God that we wouldn't know otherwise. It gives God a chance to express what is really in his heart, what's really in his mind. See, Abraham wasn't just concerned with saving his family. Notice he doesn't say, can you save my family first before you destroy them? He's actually pleading for everyone in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying, if there are some righteous there, will you spare everyone? Abraham had already saved Sodom once before. There'd been a battle involving nine different kings. And Sodom had been taken captive. And Abraham, together with some others, had gone into battle and rescued the people of Sodom to an extent that he was now an honoured individual. The king of Sodom had wanted to give him a reward. Abraham turned it down because he didn't want the king of Sodom to be able to say that he had made Abraham rich. This is when Abraham met Melchizedek, which you may be familiar with. Abraham knew more than just his own family in Sodom. He had stood up for them before. And he was standing up for them again. But let's go back again to what Abraham is actually saying. If there are only 50 people in this city, will you spare the entire city? God says yes. What if there's only 45? Yes. 40? Yeah. And so we keep going down. Till eventually Abraham stops at 10. I think by this point we know it is just he's trying to get as small as possible. Let us just stop there for a minute. Imagine yourself here in Glasgow if the only righteous godly people, okay, let's use our imaginations widely, that are in the entire city are currently gathered in this room. That everyone outside these walls is committing such heinous deeds that every single one of them is deserving of death. Abraham is asking that for our sake, they are not punished. They are not killed. And God says, yes. At which point you have to start wondering, thinking, wait a minute. 
What are we actually saying here? That the presence of ten people in a city is enough to stop it from being judged? Enough to stop... Well, I don't know if justice would be the right word, but enough to stop correction, if we want to use that term, but judgment, destruction from happening. It tells us that God desires life over death. That God values the life of the righteous more than he does the destruction of the wicked, to use biblical terms. It tells us that if there's the smallest hope in any place, then God would desire to see that hope flourish than to crush it altogether. That no matter how dark a place is, no matter how dark a situation is, that that tiny bit of light is enough for God to hold off and wait. In fact, that tiny bit of light is evidence that God is at work. Situations far darker than I hope you or I or any of us gathered here this morning have ever been in. But the Lord will wait. The Lord will give patience. It gives us a very different starting place. In our Christian walk, we are encouraged to be light and hope to the world around us. It'd be bizarre to think that our very presence is the very thing that's keeping the world still going. I'm fairly confident that sometimes some of my more loving thoughts are because I live here and don't actually have suffer much from my enemies. If I was a Christian in Syria at the moment, I've got a funny feeling my faith may take a different shape. The idea that the Lord at work in us. And outside of us also, it's not just in us, but around us, continues to bring hope to the world round about in such a way that God would rather save than condemn. This is not a God that is looking for reasons to judge people. Because whilst we want to talk of the God that brings hope in the here and now, And we also sometimes want to talk of the God who's going to put everything right with the new heaven and the new earth. There is that bit in between where we tend to like to skip. But that's the bit that our friends ask us about. That's the bit that the kids at school want to know about. That's the bit that our relatives want to know about. And they ask us the difficult questions. And yes, before this forgiveness, there needs to be repentance. Before resurrection, there needs to have been death. Before a new heaven and earth, there is an end to the old heaven and earth. And whilst I cannot stand here and say to you that I would love to give you certain answers to all the questions that you may have, I know that I can say that God desires to save. That he's looking for reasons to save. He's looking for reasons of hope, reasons of renewal, reasons to give people that bit longer.
one of the questions we may ask ourselves is when we read passages in the Bible that we don't like, when our understanding of God reveals something to us that we don't like about God, does that mean we're being any less faithful? Does that actually mean that, actually, I'm not overly sure I want to be a Christian if that's the case? And we challenge and question our own faith. Saying, well, if, actually, if God's saying this is right and that's wrong and this is what he's going to do, I don't like it. In this case, I would appeal to Abraham. Because Abraham stood there and God said, this is what I'm going to do. And Abraham said, don't. How dare you? How can you? You're meant to be righteous. You're meant to be holy. If Abraham, who was rebuked for so much in his life, was not rebuked for this, then I would encourage you. There are things that we can go to God and say, God, I don't like this. I don't like what I understand. I don't like what's happening. And people keep asking me these questions that I don't know the answers to. I know what I'd like. We know what Abraham would like, but he still stood there two days later and Sodom had been destroyed. Abraham would not have known about the future of his own family because, of course, they didn't have mobile phones or internet. He would have just seen the smoke going up. At that point, he had to trust because he challenged God enough. And it was a challenge. This, we can picture Abraham's humility as much as we want. But because he had challenged God, because he had questioned God and argued with God, that when he saw that smoke go up, he knew that God would have saved as many as he could beforehand. I don't think Abraham would have known that if he hadn't asked in the first place. And I think for many of us, sometimes there are questions we don't want to ask because we don't like the answers. But ask. Abraham questioned God's grace and mercy. And what he found was that God's grace and mercy was greater than Abraham imagined. Abraham thought, well, maybe 50 people is a reasonable number to start with. And he bargained with God. And no matter how low he set the figure, God was willing to meet him. Because it's not in God's heart to seek people for destruction. It's in God's heart to build, to strengthen, to bring hope. Yes, we require patience and long-suffering to see us through the here and now. There is much that we could focus on that depresses us. But because of God's work in the here and now, there is still that light. There is still the hope. There is still that which is flourishing. And yes, the Bible ends with, come, Lord, quickly. And there are times in my life that is my desire. And it might be a bit messy between here and there. I can't give you all the answers. And I'm sorry if I've upset you in some way this morning. But I would encourage you. Ask God. Ask him. Find out if you can trust him. Because I... I'm confident as much as I can be. 
that whatever we ask God, he will reveal to us something that we maybe weren't expecting. And that in itself is when we find the good news. Let us sing hymn number 564. let us join together in our prayers for others and for ourselves. O God, our Father, we come before you today, first of all, to ask forgiveness for all that has been wrong in our lives. We know that we've failed to show your love in our dealings with other people. We know that we've turned the other way when we could have given help or support. We know that we've sometimes failed to speak the word of encouragement or stood up for our principles when the opportunity arose. Lord, grant us your forgiveness and strengthen our resolve to live out our faith in the future. Lord, we live in a world where there is much distress, the distress of all those who are migrants and wander in foreign lands where they are largely unwelcome and viewed with suspicion the distress of all those who live in war-torn lands, whose homes have been destroyed and their future relies on the aid of other nations and a forlorn hope for the restoration of peace. We pray also for the distress of all those nearer at hand who have found their normal pattern of life destroyed by unprecedented floods. We give thanks for all who are seeking to relieve their distress and for all those in positions of authority who might be able to bring longer-term relief in the future. We would pray also for our own congregation today. Sometimes in these dark winter days we feel dispirited. Our faith may be tested by the challenges that we have to face, both personally 
and as a family of your people. Indeed, we might even feel rebellious in our hearts and our loyalty to the faith we have sought to espouse over the years wears just a little thin and threadbare. Lord, we know that you have promised that you will never leave or abandon us, and we pray that we may renew our trust now in the confines of this service of worship. Lord, grant us renewed hope and plant a song in our hearts. And finally this morning, we would remember in prayer our minister, Katrina, as she receives treatment in hospital. May she be aware of your love for her and the concern of her people, and may the recovery process be steady. And so, Lord God, help us to go forth from here, having met with our living Saviour. Teach us to listen in the stillness of worship to your words of encouragement. Teach us to see your hand shown by actions of those who seek to act in your name, in great endeavours, and in simple deeds of everyday kindness by those who serve you. Above all, teach us to rely on you in all things, for we know that you will never leave us or forsake us, and in in that confidence we go forth from here to love and serve you in all things. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of our lives that we receive from you. We thank you for the hope that you've given us. And we pray, Lord, that the blessings we receive from you will never be overshadowed by the difficulties that we face. We thank you, Lord, for the work you've done in our lives and the work you continue to do through us. And we give you our time and our talents, and we offer these to you, Lord, that we may be part of that work. And it's with this, Lord, that we bring this offering this morning, that you would use these finances for your purposes, to glorify your name, to bring hope and life 
here in Hillhead and to those for whom you've intended it. Amen. Let us sing hymn number 328, And Can It Be?
death of sin raised you to new life in Christ, keep you from falling and set you in the presence of his glory. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. And to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.